Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, August 26th. We begin with a look at the dire situation unfolding in Afghanistan. With both Canada and the United States leaving the region, is there any way to ensure the safety of the Afghan people without an international presence in the region? We get the thoughts of David Perry, senior analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Next, we get an update on coal production in the province. We speak with Ian Urquhart from the Alberta Wilderness Association for the latest on the situation and his thoughts on the responsibility of the federal government when it comes to the controversial resource. Calgary's EMS system saw a huge rise in periods where no ambulances were available to attend emergency calls in the city over the past year. We find out why this is happening and what can be done to remedy the issue. We discuss with Mike Parker, president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. And finally, it's a visual celebration of pride in our city. We hear the details of a new art installation at Memorial Park, funded by Calgary's Shaw Communications, which features the work of four local artisans. David Perry is the vice president and senior analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and says that once Canada and the U.S. leave Kabul, Afghanistan, it will probably be impossible to ensure Afghan safety. So was there something that could have been done differently and what happens from here? It's a big topic and David joins us now with his thoughts. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Gee, it's a terrible situation. We're watching it unfold in Afghanistan, and it's just been painful to watch as so many people try to get out of that country. Is it really shocking that we're at this point? Or, or I mean, experts had been predicting that things were going to get really bad as soon as the Americans decided to leave. So what happens from here? I think at this point, that's all very much unclear um, for a few different reasons. One, uh, it seems like basically all the, the Western countries that we've worked with in Afghanistan over the last two decades, led by the Americans, uh, are, are going to be in, a, in every substantial form gone as of the end of this month. Um, so starting on the 1st of September, it's not even clear how many countries are going to actually have functional embassies and any kind of um, ongoing diplomatic uh, presence in the country. But it's certainly going to be nothing like what things um, were e- even um, two or three weeks ago, um, before the Americans had, had finally drawn down and totally left. And what that means is that uh, this is going to be uh, primarily uh, an Afghan or a, a regional story where we don't have the kind of insight that we'd had by having the very large sustained presence from the United States. Canada until we pulled out substantially on our allies that we've had in the past. So in terms of uh, looking after anybody that we or our allies in Britain or France um, or any other uh, jurisdiction that have been engaged militarily uh, and is now looking out for people's safety, you don't have people there. It's, it's very difficult to, to both know what's going on or to really actively provide them with all that much help. David, as you see the images on, on television and online of those transport and cargo planes just fully stacked with people to evacuate the country this is where we are today so and i know that hindsight is always 2020 could we have done things differently uh, as a nation in you know to to help afghanistan I think certainly um, it, it seems to me that we could have been better prepared um, to get people out. Um, I think the timing of Taliban uh, takeoff so that the country seems to have caught everyone by surprise, uh, but the timing of the American departure should not have. Mm. Uh, and as I'm just pointing out, when the Americans pull out all of their assets, I think that, that was ultimately going to fundamentally change kind of our insight into what was happening, our ability to exert any leverage or try and help people that were there. Um, and it's been clear for two presidents in the world that the United States um, had intended to leave. And when they said leave, they meant everybody out effectively. Um, so we, I think we've had more warning uh, than we uh, probably 
um, are, are kind of willing to admit right now in terms of the, the preparation, preparation on the government side to, to make sure that if folks wanted to leave when it looks like the Taliban was starting to move, that you know these are the different types of documentation um, that you were going to be expected to have to present to the uh, Canadian officials, however that was arrived. At, um, even to the point when, you know, there, that, it wasn't all that long ago that there was a functional commercial airport in um, Afghanistan and Kabul, the one now that's totally run by the American military, where there's, there's effectively no commercial flights that are coming uh, in unless they're, they're authorized um, by the, the U.S. Army, effectively. So it's a long, long period of time. Lots, lots of uh, chaos was to be expected, but um, I kind of wonder what we could have done more to prepare uh, for this eventuality when it became clear that the Americans are on the way out. And David, you have talked about it, it likely being impossible to ensure the safety of Afghans once, you know, Canadians and the U.S. military obviously leave Kabul as well. Does that mean there's, it's not expected that any of the allies will ever be able to go into that country safely again? Well, I think it all kind of depends on um, what transpires with uh, the Taliban regime and, and what kind of posture they take towards the West. I mean, I think it's important for everybody to keep in mind that um, the extent that we've been able to work there with a relative degree of, of safety, as I say, that's comfortably from Ottawa, mm-hmm. um, it was because of an arrangement worked out with the Taliban Americans, um, with, I think, we're seeing increasingly clearly, um, that was very much predicated on that firm October 31st in your out date. Once we're out... Um, I think the, the Taliban um, leadership seems very keen on getting international recognition, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. But, but if you're not there, and most of the Western countries um, had effectively closed up their embassies and moved the embassy operations to the airport, and I think until the security situation gets um, more clear, and it seems from reporting early this morning that uh, it, the security situation is actually worsening, um, it's not really clear whether or not we're even actually going to have uh, either Canadian or, or other uh, core allies returning to operating embassies in the country. And if that doesn't happen, then it's all, it, it's so murky, it's almost impossible to, to get a sense of, of what we're able to do on the ground. Um, and if you don't have eyes on, it's very difficult to understand even what you could do if you were able to. The Taliban have come out and said that, the, you know, this time, you know, running Afghanistan, there'll be a more moderate ruler. They vowed amnesty to Afghans who worked with Western forces during the U.S.-led war on terror and, and actually have claimed to want to have women present in government. Do you buy these statements from the Taliban? So I, I'm not an expert on the Taliban, but I did have one on my, my Defense Deconstructed podcast uh, last week um, and made a couple of observations, I think, that are, are pretty germane here. Um, so for one thing, the, the, the Taliban, even dating back to the 90s, have always been pretty good at marketing uh, and public relations oriented towards the West. Uh, and they've only gotten uh, basically more savvy and moved that into the digital age that we're seeing play out right now. So they're pretty good at saying the right thing. Uh, and then the other thing that he said was the uh, the way that they position themselves, uh, they're, 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 they want the West out, uh, and they don't want to do anything that would potentially imperil that. So they're going to be very careful uh, to the extent that they can uh, to not do any of the things that were totally reprehensible uh, in the 1990s anywhere near a Western news camera in a way that could generate a lot of attention. Um, and then the final and the really troubling thing is that, that uh, ultimately these are a more uh, radical and ideologically fanatical group than they were the last time that they were in power. Because a lot of the moderates left over the last two decades. So where do the Canadian military and, and the American military stand then? Once everybody has gone, do we just watch and, and let things happen as they did some 20 years ago? Or is there, you know, what, what, how, how does that work? How does that look? We, we don't just turn our backs. Obviously, everybody's got to be keeping an eye on things in that country. 
Uh, I think, unfortunately, we're, we're, there will be a level of attention. Um, the United States in particular has more um, military capability in the region from a surveillance point of view, um, uh, intelligence apparatus where they can keep a more active watch. Uh, but a lot of the, you know, the intelligence function that was in that country to keep an eye on things was all based locally in Afghanistan. Um, so I think it's very difficult to underestimate how much of that, uh, just the simple insight and intelligence you lose when you, when you pull out. Uh, and on my read of what the Americans are saying, uh, it's a no kidding, we're gone. Uh, we're pulling people out. You know, they may have, um, we'll see what happens in terms of a diplomatic presence and an embassy, and, and those always have um, some degree of that intelligence and, and military support. But beyond that, there, there won't be people in country. And in Canada, uh, we've been gone for um, substantively for a decade. And, and after a training mission ended, that was um, seven years ago. And um, beyond the people that we had at the uh, embassy, which is a much reduced footprint, uh, we've not really been fully involved in Afghanistan, um, and at least in the way that we had been uh, in the 2000s for quite some time now. David, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Good to talk to you. That's David Perry, Vice President and Senior Analyst at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Coal mining, big part of Canada's and Alberta's economy, but several controversial projects have stirred up a, a lot of people's ire here in our province. And with an update on what Alberta's current coal mining situation is, we're joined this morning by Ian Urquhart with the Alberta Wilderness Association. Good morning, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Sue. My pleasure. Thank you. We know there was a lot of controversy, I guess, early this year. And it's, you know, people really had their say and it looked like Alberta kind of pulled back in terms of allowing coal mining in the province. But it is still going on, isn't it? Well, it is in terms of the, uh, the the process in terms of companies trying to get approvals from governments in order to proceed with uh, uh, metallurgical and thermal coal mining. Yes. So, I mean, it's still going ahead on that level. One one uh, important point, though, Sue, is that really, you know, when it comes to coal mining today in the Alberta economy, it's not significant. Uh, there is not one coking coal mining operation in this province that's operating today. So when the boosters of this, of this uh, type of development try to suggest this is an important part of the economy today, they're just simply wrong. Mm. Biggest concern, uh, Ian, what we hear time and time again is water. Are there other yeah. concerns beyond the water? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly there are, Andy. I mean, water and selenium pollution has become the you know, the poster child for for opposition to uh, metallurgical coal mining. But there are other important issues here as well. Uh, there is a what uh, what about the recreational opportunities in the eastern slopes? that we as Albertans are able to enjoy now. What happens to those opportunities if we proceed with coal mining in the Rockies? What happens to species at risk in the eastern slopes, such as West Slope cutthroat trout or a threatened species such as grizzly bear, if we decide to put to, uh, if we decide to devote tens of thousands of hectares in the eastern slopes to coal mining? Uh, what about you know what about what about climate change? I mean, you know, in a province that is being criticized, as yes, as the Premier well knows, criticized for things like the, the oil sands, why are they considering embracing another greenhouse gas intensive industry such as coal mining? It, it doesn't make 
sense for the climate. I don't think it makes political sense either for that matter. Well, and with the, the pushback from residents of this province and no doubt from across the country, you'd think that it wouldn't be such a popular idea. But yet, uh, you know, as you said at the beginning, it, it, there are companies still trying to bid on work in this province. What is the position of the Alberta government when it comes to coal mining and, and new work being done here? Yeah, so where we are right now, Sue, is that we're in a, we're in a, a period where, as you identified at, at the outset, uh, the government pulled back. I mean, the government pulled back in terms of uh, its commitment to coal mining. And so they've created a coal policy committee. The coal policy committee is, um, is going to report to Minister of Energy Savage by the middle of November with recommendations about what they think should happen with respect to coal policy in Alberta. You also, this is sort of a two-track issue process, though, because we also have what's going on at the federal level. And at the federal level, uh, Minister Wilkinson uh, of, the, of the Trudeau government has said that you know any uh, metallurgical coal mining proposal, uh, such as you know, if you have a dream to, to do that in the Rockies, uh, will have to undergo a federal environmental assessment, a federal impact assessment. So we have sort of a two-track process here going on. There are things happening provincially. And, and I guess there I should add, too, that when the legislature comes back in October, uh, the first private member's bill on the list to be debated is one from former Premier Notley, uh, which involves and which suggests we should take an important step to prohibit uh, coal mining in the eastern slopes. You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Ian, the federal minister, uh, having some words. But I'm wondering, you know, when you talk about climate change, are you hearing uh, from the major party leaders during the federal campaign anything surrounding coal? Or is it just general terms for climate change? Or is this more of an Alberta-specific issue that they're not, you know, cognizant of so much? It's been, it's been, uh, it's certainly general, Andy. But th- there have been, though, announcements from the federal government that have... Uh, targeted coal particularly. So you had the announcement by Minister Wilkinson about the need to do uh, federal impact assessments of coke and coal projects. So that, if you like, sort of increases the bar, in my opinion, that a coal mining proposal will have to get over. Uh, We also have in Canada the, the commitment that we won't be burning thermal coal in domestic electricity generating stations um, by 2030. So there have been commitments on the federal level as well to that are that are, that aren't positive uh, for the future uh, for the future of the coal mining industry in uh, in Canada generally and I would argue in Alberta in particular. Ian, just before we wrap up, so I just want to be sh- clear for myself and for everybody else. So, so sure. the government, the provincial government has stopped leasing out, you know, the exploration leases has, have been stopped basically. But, but there are, are many leases that still exist out there, right? So are they just on pause or, or will that go ahead at some point potentially? You know, so they are just on pause. So if you looked at a map of the eastern slopes and we imposed and we we put a a layer of coal mining leases over that territory, you would see that much of that territory is leased for coal mining. So really, right now it is on pause. And uh, Dr. Ron Wallace and his committee will be making their recommendations to the province about what should be done with respect to uh, coal mining in Alberta. And uh, we'll see where we go from there. Uh, we'll send, uh, you know, I don't think the opposition to this 
has uh, diminished uh, has has diminished at all over mm-hmm. the summer, and so we'll see what they deliver for us uh, later in the fall. Ian, thanks for the update, and thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, my pleasure, Andy. Sue, take care. That's Ian Urquhart with the Alberta Wilderness Association. Calgary's EMS system saw a huge rise in periods where no ambulances were available over the last year. But why is this happening? To help break down the situation, we are joined now by Mike Parker, the president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning, friends. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Thank you for being here. Now, if you can break down for us, Mike, the situation in the past year and how would it compare to previous years? Sure. We're... We're looking at, from the latest report that's come out, uh, 3,500 roughly uh, code red events in the city of Calgary. And what, what I would suggest is they're finally showing the reality of what we've been saying for years. What we're seeing here is a system that does not have enough resources. Call volumes continue to increase. Populations continue to increase. And the true picture is finally being painted of what it looks like to be a paramedic on the streets in Calgary. For those of us not in the know, Mike, can you explain what exactly is a code red? Sure. When you... When you have a system that's got X number of ambulances, and and in Calgary the number fluctuates, but let's just say the number is 30. And every one of those ambulances has been assigned to a call or a 911 emergency. There are no trucks available, you've hit a code red. What they'll do in these cases is draw in other outlying communities, maybe from Okotoks or as far away as Kananaskis, to try and back up the system to help them out, leaving all of those other communities exposed with no coverage. All of this comes from not having enough resources in the city of Calgary. Mike, I'm wondering, you know, is this, is this a Calgary-specific problem, or can we look at other cities in the province, such as Edmonton, for a comparison? We, we sure can. Edmonton has been in a very similar situation, and I'm curious on their numbers that, they've, that the fourth document shows, or it says only 600, because I would suggest that maybe they should look at doing a, a common factoring on how code reds are calculated, because there's some math problems here with their scenario. Edmonton is in the same position and drawing in from outlying communities on a daily basis as well. What's the bottom line here, Mike? Is this a municipal government budgeting issue? We need more money for paramedics, for ambulances as a whole, or both of those? This is, this is not a municipal issue. This is a provincial issue. Okay. This is a provincial government that's created this. The provincial government pulled money out of EMS only two years ago, uh, and we continue to see call volume increase. So... We're not resourcing, we've cut funding, and now we sit with code reds happening on a daily basis in the cities of Edmonton and Calgary, and we can delve even deeper and say Medicine Hack is the same, Grand Prairie is the same. Mike, you mentioned something about, you know, the the state of of being a paramedic, working in EMS in Calgary, and so I wonder if you can give us a little bit more on that in the sense that if I need an ambulance to come to my house for what you're saying is a code red for a family member, that's stressful for me. But to work on the other side and knowing that you can't provide service that you're trained to do, that you want to do, that has to be stressful for the workers. The job of a paramedic is difficult. Let's just get that out clear as day. This is not an easy job that they do, and they give their all to do it. When you're responding for 30 minutes to a, to a cardiac arrest, or you're responding 30 minutes across the city of Calgary, for a a respiratory distress or a critical patient in a car wreck. It is absolutely uh, devastating to these people. They feel disrespected in the job that they do. The government is choosing to uh, continue to mislead the public by saying that everything is fine. And at the end of the day, these folks are being forced into mandatory overtime. 
They are doing trips that are now, their shifts are now 12 to 14 to 16 hours before they can get off work. And it is absolutely demoralizing to the crews that are out there. And obviously throw in a pandemic and it just adds to it. What can we do as citizens of this city and this province, Mike? We're doing the right thing right now. We are listening to this conversation. We are talking about it, saying there's something wrong with our emergency medical services system. It is a structural failure of the management teams and the government that is responsible for them. And we need to speak up. We need to speak up to our local MLAs. We need to speak up to anybody who will listen to say there's something wrong with our system. Because the decimation of the EMS profession is going to wave into the healthcare system fully. Because all of those units that are tied up and piled up trying to offload their patients backs up the ERs. We have no access to doctors in this province. We've closed all of our safe injection sites in this province. A pandemic that's now hitting uh, wave four. Uh, You know, let's wake up here and realize that there's some leadership that's needed. And it has to come from the provincial government. Mike, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you so much and stay safe. That's Mike Parker, president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. And Sue, uh, you know, I, I have, fortunately, I've never had to call an ambulance in my house. I know that my mom had to when my dad was, was sick mm-hmm. and, and, and they came, but I can't imagine, you're, you, you, as soon as you put down that phone, you're just looking out the window wondering how quickly the ambulance is going to come or how fast they'll be there to help your family member out. And that those are shocking numbers when you're seeing, you know, 3,500 times yeah. that there is no ambulance available for a call. Basically nine or 10 times a day through an entire year. It, it really is shocking. So, I mean, I guess that's something we need to keep calling on our provincial leaders to fix this, make this better because you never know. You never know when it's you or somebody mm-hmm. you love. And we expect there to be an ambulance at our call when we pick up that phone. Well, if it's not there, there's no service. We aren't able to get that help. That's it's, just that's shocking in a, in you know a city like this and a country like it's ours. terrifying, yeah. especially with our healthcare system that's supposed to be there for us. Yeah. Right, and that's an extension of it, obviously. A new art installation is being unveiled later today, which means Calgarians can soon see four different murals at Memorial Park <laughs> in celebration of Calgary Pride. With some details, we're joined by Chima Ankindurum, Vice President for Government Relations for Shaw Communications. Good morning to you, Chima. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Sue. Nice to be here. Good to, good to have you with us. I know the wait is getting closer. We're just a few hours away from the unveiling, but give us, uh, give us a, a description of what people are going to be seeing here, Chima. Okay, fantastic. If you head down to Central Memorial Park this morning, you will see that we have painted, we've had artists paint a big uh, rainbow plaid flag all around uh, the park. And then in each of the four corners of the park, there's these little, there are these plazas, quite large plazas. And Shaw, in partnership with the City of Calgary, Calgary Pride and Calgary Arts Development, has um, supported four different artist groups from, uh, from the LGBTQ plus and BIPOC communities to uh, paint murals uh, that signifies what pride means to them. So it's a way to celebrate pride in a, in a time where we still are trying, in this COVID awkward time where mm-hmm. we're still trying to do social distancing and can't do a parade. So it's a way to celebrate the community. And I love you're using local artists to be able to promote their gifts and, and what they do. Now, these are temporary, correct? Yeah, these are temporary. Uh, this installation will be up through today until uh, Sunday, October 3rd. And everything is removable, so we'll clean it all up once it's all done. But we think it's gone. Uh, um, so Calgarians have a lot of time to come down and, and check out the art and reflect on what pride means to our community. We're really excited about it. 
All right, so we can check it out. We can walk around. Are we hoping that this is going to be something that, you know, is we got a lot of selfie people. In a, in a, <laughs> a lot of, hoping it's going to be like one of these, like almost like a peace bridge or like the giant uh, wire head in front of the big uh, Sonovus building. <laughs> well, I hope so. Well, we this is our second year of doing this particular project, and it was a real hit last time. Um, and so uh, uh, it did show up on Instagram. So we encourage people to. Uh, tweet it, uh, Instagram it, um, LinkedIn it if you do that. Uh, yes. You know, whatever your sort of social media choices. Um, uh, I think that that'll be great. And I think the artists will really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a tough go for artists, uh, you know, for this past year and a half for sure. It's great that Shaw is supporting these artists and each team $5,000 to create each art installation. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's a big deal. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, Shaw's covering all the costs to, um, uh, to make sure the artists get paid to, for their work, but also to, for all the materials and for um, uh, all the cleanup afterwards. And for artists, it's been a tough, tough time mm-hmm. for our arts community. I do a lot of volunteer work in that community, and um, it's been really hard. So it's really good that, uh, to give them an opportunity to, have their, to do some work and get their work uh, seen. Looking forward to getting down, bringing the family down and checking it out. Thanks for your time this morning, Chima. Thank you. You guys have a great day. You too. too. That is Chima Durham, of course, Vice President of Government Relations for Shaw Communications. Yes, I, he, was, he, he got a good chuckle out of that, but it's true. That's what we do. We don't just go look at things. No. You, you got to get it in the background. And not just a picture, but you've got to be in the picture with it. Which I know we got a tight show, but I want to point this out right now. My idea for the arena, I unveiled it to you earlier. Yes. We have to have some kind of Western heritage. People allude to that. We call a hockey arena a barn. Let's make it look like the biggest barn in the world. Oh, people could take Let's selfies. Let's make it barn, with you know, the barn. A big barn doors and a big roof on it. It'll look, oh, I know, it might look a little, uh, you know, a little hokey. But it does will it have st- a red tin roof in of your imagination? It, does. <laughs> it, will, it will. It will stand out. Your thoughts on the arena as well as the, the big uh, art installations at Memorial. Lots of uh, Memorial Park, lots of good stuff going on in the city. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.